Welcome everybody to the After Ed Podcast with Jason Vest, where we interview thought leaders, educators, and students from around the world, people that just aren't content with the status quo. Why should you listen to me? Because I'm an educator right there in the trenches doing it every single day. Please tune in. Welcome, everybody, to the After Ed Podcast today. um, Man, I mean, I'm just, uh, I'm so lucky. Today on the show, I have Tom Murray. Tom, thank you for agreeing to be on. Uh, It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Tom, usually what I do is I will uh, list off uh, all of the accolades and accomplishments and titles that, that the guests have, but... Uh, to be totally frank, you have so many and you've done so much. Uh, I will just let you share, um, you know, what, what's most pertinent at this time, if, if you're all right with that. Uh, sure. Thank you, Jason. I'm honored, honored by that. You know, any sort of award, anything that's out there um, is, is certainly an honor. But I think most proud of is being a dad. And I, I've got a little girl who's eight years old sitting in a, a, school, a second grade classroom today in, in Pennsylvania, a little boy at four and a half years old. Um, they're what I'm most proud of. They're why I do what I do. You know, any recognition that's out there is certainly nice and appreciated, but it's not why I do what I do by any means. I'm, I'm here to serve my own children, my own family first and foremost, but kids across the country. And at the end of the day, when we look at those kids um, in the work that we're doing and we look them in the eyes, they don't care about some award that's hanging on the back behind some desk. They care about what we can do for them and how we best prepare them and making them feel loved and, and, and cared for and so on and so forth. But that's to me what matters most. And I'll say honestly, that's what I'm most proud of. Yeah, man. I mean, what, what a great answer. And that's just a testament to, uh, you know, I'm familiar with your work and I see where it is that you're you're moving education and that makes total sense for me and since you brought it up i i just need to share the same thing like really what's propelled me to get to that next level and and make the changes that i'm trying to make uh, are my own kids i have two little boys that are about to be four and two and you're exactly right you know everything that i do always comes back to seeing them and knowing that eventually in the next couple of years they're going to join the system that we have created and so uh, I want to ensure that uh, they they have a better opportunity than a lot of kids do today. Yeah, you know, Jason, and, and why I do the work that I do truly, whether it's Future Ready Schools, whether it's Writing Learning Transformed with, with Eric Scheninger, you know, when I look in the eyes of my little boy, he's the class of 2032, the high school class. And, and I joke sometimes, like, I hope he makes it out by 2032 and knowing him and, uh, and knowing how he is. But the other piece is, then I look at my little girl and my own two children, same DNA, are complete opposites. And it, to me, that how do we get to kids that are like my little girl, that'll sit there, hand raised, be compliant, do whatever, you know, is above grade level, to then my little boy, who's the complete opposite of all of those things. And to me, that gets to the heart of the teaching and learning side and why we need to make things personal for kids, but also the driving force of what's the world of work going to look like in 2032 when my little boy leaves high school? Um, you know, as a grown man at that point, what's that going to look like? And so it really gives me the drive to help change the system. And if it's good enough for my own kids, it's got to be good enough for every other kid that's out there, you know? And, and so mindset is not just about my own little kids, but it's about if I can expect that from the schools that teach my own children and support the schools that teach my own children, it has to be good enough for every other kid out there as well. 
Absolutely. So you, you're already on the same wavelength. So my first question is, what is the future going to look like in 2032, in 2025? Yeah. You know, first of all, of course, nobody knows, you know, but there's a lot of projections that are there. We can take trends over time. We can look at the acceleration of things over time and make those projections. What I can tell you it won't look like is what it looks like today. That we know because things are changing. So let me give you some examples. You know, one of the things I often hear along these lines, I I do a lot of conferences every year, and I often hear things like, we're preparing our kids for a world that doesn't yet exist. You know, I hear that statement over and over. And, and, you know, on one hand, it's, it's always been the case. Like, we've always done that for kids. But here's the change. Technology is changing things so rapidly that that acceleration and that speed is going up exponentially. Let me give you some concrete examples. When we take a look at, at this, what's been coined the, the fourth industrial revolution, it's something that Eric and I wrote, wrote about. Uh, we didn't coin that term. It, that, that notion is out there. But we wrote about the fourth industrial revolution. And that's the, no, the notion of automation and robotics and how this world work is changing. So having worked in D.C. for the past four years now, like I've worked alongside the White House and the Senate and the Congress in a bipartisan way. If you can believe anything's bipartisan. But about two years ago, a report to Congress came out on the changing world of work and the projections from the White House Economic Council. This was still while Obama was in office. But the, the projections came out, and these are some of the projections they're now predicting. And I believe it's about a 25-year to 30-year timeline. They're now projecting about an 83% chance that workers earning less than $20 an hour will eventually lose their jobs to automation and robotics. And if you think about it, I mean, that's four in five people. Yeah. I mean, we're at a time where if, if an algorithm can be written for a job, it eventually will be. Because you think about what our society wants and what our society demands. We want to be able to sit on our couch, put one push one button one time, it magically shows up on our doorstep, whether it be like an Instacart with food, whether it be through Amazon. But those things are drastically changing the world of work, and we see it. You know, like what's happening to the malls around our country. There's a reason most of them are going under, you know. And so as these things change, what does that mean for our kids that sit in our classrooms every day? And what it means is we can't have our head in the sand as educators with the that's the way I've always done it mindset. And this is what we're always going to do mindset because we will completely become irrelevant. Here's the news, Jason. Things are changing. And I'm encouraged every day by the educators I get to work with. I'm encouraged every day by the amazing passion and dedication of those that love kids working in school. And they're doing it every single day and change is happening. Well, I mean, what great information you get. I mean, the statistic with people, you know, making under that amount being, you know, just, I mean, if you don't have the skill, you you don't have a job. And that, that I think should be a really eye-opening thing for people. And I know a lot of what we do or what we've done the past 200 years in education is prepare people based on that factory model, the traditional learning or regular learning model. And I'm using air quotes. So then... How do we get people, teachers, schools, whatever it is, to shift between that regular and deeper learning? So I I guess my question is, what is the true difference between traditional education and deeper learning? Sure, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I'll hit it right from the get-go. What drives so much of what we do right now, it's the structure, the testing, and the system that we have set up. You know, I'll hear quite often educators say, you know, I'd love to do these amazingly innovative things. 
but we have to take a test at the end of the year. So let me address that from two ends. One is I understand because I've been there, I've been the district leader, I've been the principal, I've been the teacher administering, I get it, and it's a reality, and that's not something that's going away in the near future. You know, I'm not going to take the mindset of, well, nothing matters, ignore the test, who cares, because on my end, that's just negligence. Like, that's one of the ways that we're measured by society at this point in time. Now, I'm not saying that it's, it's the way it all should be by any means. I think under ESSA, I think things will change a little bit, but things like standardized testing are not going away. You know, what's interesting is I took standardized tests as a second grader over 30 years ago. You know, so inherently, in and of itself, those kinds of things aren't necessarily bad. The premise being, you know, a fourth grader in Texas and a fourth grader in New York should be roughly at the same point. But the downside is how political they become, how anxious students are, how much pressure we put on, those kinds of things themselves. So that often becomes a stumbling block for I would love to do this, but... So my mind shift should be, it should be a yes and. I think when we make the argument that, you know, I can't do any innovative things, I've got to just teach this exact curriculum because of the test, I think that's more of a mindset problem than a testing problem. And so to address that in a second way, what can we do in classrooms to give kids dynamic and personal and authentic learning experiences? So what's the difference to get to the heart of your question? When I think of the industrial model, it's very teacher-centric, a stand-and-deliver methodology, kids often in rows in terms of the learning spaces, Um, the kind of the job of the teacher in that realm is I share the content. Your job as the student is to learn the content and share it back to me to show your knowledge. Now, again, going back to the industrial model, that worked because that's what the world of work looked like then. You went to a factory, you did the same kind of thing over and over, somebody taught you one skill, you did it multiple times, and so we replicated that in our school system, and it was fine. Here's the problem. That world of work and that factory model is completely obsolete, or I should say almost completely obsolete in the United States. There's places elsewhere throughout the world that are doing it much cheaper, and that's why those jobs have gone overseas. But when you look at what our world of work is and what our kids need, here's the flip side to the statistic that I I shared earlier. They're projecting only a 4% chance, so about less than 1 in 20, for those making over $40 an hour or more. So to be clear on that, it's not about the dollar amount. It's about the skills people have in obtaining that dollar amount. So if we were to think, okay, what are the skills people have that are constantly or continuously earning those? They're able to problem solve. They're very creative. They can think on their feet. They can collaborate in real time with people around the world. The social emotional side of things. So here's the disconnect. If we look at evidence and practice, you know, When Eric Scheninger and I were writing Learning Transformed, we spent about a year researching schools that were transforming and and what it actually looked like. And we spent a year diving into research and papers and everything that we could about transforming schools and what it looked like. And everything we find on the teaching and learning side of things, the stand and deliver methodology of that teacher-centric environment shows little impact. There's various studies out there. I've seen anywhere from kids retain about 4% up to like 17 or 18% in different studies. But regardless, that's less than one in five days or down to one in 20 days of what kids actually remember long term. So from a learning sciences or a brain science end to step back, what actually works? It's making learning personal and making it authentic. So you want to talk about deeper learning? Let's make it relevant for kids. You know, when, we, when, I, when I was a teacher, when I was a principal, I can remember thinking back to times kids would ask me, you know, Mr. Murray, why are we learning this? Why are we doing this? 
you know, inherently, that shows instantly they don't see the relevance to what they're doing. Yeah. And what I'll say is if, if kids are asking that over and over again, it's probably a good question, or we've made it such a disconnect, and then we can't understand why they can't relate, but they don't see any relevance to it. So part of deeper learning, last thought here, how do we help kids solve real-world problems? So many times our mindset, I was guilty of it too, there was times where I would, I would drop the quote, you know, well, in the real world, well, let me tell you, our kids' world is real every day. And I was sitting on a stage last week with a student in a student panel, and, and this, this girl said, you know, sometimes I feel like I learn more on the outside of the school wall than I do on the inside of the school wall. Mm. And I got chills when she said that. Where do we recognize that our kids are problem solvers, our kids are creators, our kids aren't there to just soak in information? We give them challenges to solve real-world problems, even in their own community, and you can see what absolutely happens. One example of that, recently I read a story, they were called the DIY girls, the do-it-yourself girls. These girls, this group of girls lived in California and they would walk to school every day. And over time, they noticed the homelessness in their community continued to rise. So as they would walk to school and they'd walk by these these people and humans laying on the ground to get to school, they started to say, what can they do about it? They went to their school and they asked their teachers and they asked people, how can we help solve this problem? And rather than the teachers say, well, here's a 10-step process, you have to listen to this lecture and then maybe we'll give you something that you can do, they started with the creation. They started with the design, but they were all driven by the fact that they wanted to help people in their own community. Fast forward a bit, another school's got involved. It was a full-girl engineering team, which I love. I think that's amazing in and of itself. And they invented this tent with a solar panel to help those that are homeless and are going to be giving them to those tents to those people to support, to keep them a bit warmer, give them some shelter. That's giving kids the opportunity. You want to talk about learning math or learning science? Let them create something like that, design something. But again, sometimes our mindset, oh, we don't have time for that. Well, when we look at the time that's used in a traditional manner, we're not spending it well anyway. We might as well give them the time to create and design because that's the higher level learning our kids need. Wow. I mean, that what a lot of information there, but, you know, what a what a great answer. And um, I just have to share that I was I was able and this is a segue to my next question. I was able and I, I'm not denying how lucky I was to be able to do this, but I went to my principal at the end of last year and I had an idea for an entrepreneur program um, for certain students that we have that are in Section 8 housing at my school building. Um, He saw it differently, and what it evolved into was an innovation class focused in design thinking and entrepreneurship during uh, what we'll just call a study hall block so that everyone listening can identify with that. Uh, And I know for a fact that I have transformed the kids, I transformed the classroom, but not everyone has that freedom to be able to do that. So practically speaking, if there's someone listening, and this is true to your your book and, and Eric's book, if they want to transform their classroom starting tomorrow, what's the first thing that they should do? So the first answer by default is relationships with kids. And when I say by default is anytime somebody asks me what's the first thing I need to focus on if we're going to change something, it's ultimately going to be relationships. Yeah. Because we can we can look to change things from policy. You know, I, I work in some of the highest levels of policy federally. But at the end of the day, they're not going to mean anything if the people that we're working with don't have some sort of relationship moving forward because they'll just become barriers or stumbling blocks. So first and foremost, 
foremost, it's focusing on the relationship, focusing on loving and caring about kids, because ultimately everything else we do is secondary. Second piece, I would say, is ask the kids. You know, one of the things that I don't feel I did a good job of as a teacher and even as a principal that I would say is a regret of mine, honestly, is there's very few times that I can look back and say, I ran with what the students thought or I led with student voice. You know, so many times it was me trying to create these dynamic lessons or me trying to do this or me trying to do that. Instead of stepping back and asking kids, what is it that you need? How can we learn this differently? What would be a better support? And then leading with some of their voice. And so second piece would be ask the kids. And and when we step back, it's such a common sense example. It really, really is. Yet it's not something that leads the way like it should or could in schools. And then third, focusing on when you mentioned the deeper learning piece, it's constantly challenging ourselves. If this is the content that my kids need to know, or this is what we're going to be held accountable for, or these are the different aspects of things that, you know, the different standards my kids need to know, it's asking the question, what's an incredibly innovative way or fun way or dynamic way that kids could learn this content at deep levels? And then fourth, another idea or thought here, one of the areas that Eric and I really wrote about in Learning Transformed from Research to Practice is the notion of learning spaces. You know, um, I'm a huge fan of technology. We can dive into that as well, but when used well. But the notion of the space itself, there's a lot of research behind the brain and about how the brain internalizes things to be able to even learn regarding the space that one is in. And so I would make sure in that environment, I I would ask the teacher to start to think to focus on, does the space match the desired pedagogy? So if we're looking for something that's more personal in nature, how do we make the learning space more personal for the kid? Do we do the kids feel like they belong in that learning environment? Is the learning environment not overstimulating? So in other words, kind of just right per se, and I know different people have different preferences, but sometimes we overstimulate everything and it can throw kids off. So lots of thoughts there in terms of kind of the where to begin, but there's just a few basic foundational steps from the initial thought of relationships and loving and caring about kids being the obvious, down to the spaces learning takes that place in, down to, you know, how can technology be an accelerant or an amplifier to help uh, the learning be that much better for kids as well. So what is innovation? I mean, you you are the director of innovation for Future Ready Schools. I teach what I'm calling an innovation class. Um, but it has also become a bit of a buzzword in education and, and really just across society. So what does that word mean to you? Sure, that's a great question. I agree. You know, we buzzword bingo the heck out of everything in education, don't we? Yep. And uh, the, notion, the notion of innovation certainly can mean um, different things to different people. You know, when we think, when I think about innovation, I think about simply making things better, doing things different. And I know I think that's at, at the most basic level, but what I mean is how do we take things that, that we've always done and sometimes blow them out of the water and make it that much better? You know, some of the innovative things we see outside of school walls, something like an Uber, you know, it solved a society problem. Everybody complained about taxis for since their existence. But yet somebody had, maybe there's a different way to do it, a different way to get people involved. The heck of an innovative thought. And what's happened, it's changed the lives of people in different ways, like the quality of it. I'm somebody, I, I took 140 flights last year. I took one 
taxi cab, just one. The rest were Uber or Lyft, but that's an example of an innovation that took something and totally changed the experience, yet the concept had always been there. The concept of moving people without their own vehicle from one from point A to point B has always been there, but how to do it and the process was different. You know, innovation can be very much about the process itself. You still got from point A to point B, the end result was still the same, but the how and the process was innovation there. You know, or another example, take something like an Airbnb, same idea kind of like the Uber of hotels per se. You know, why is that innovative? Well, the same need was there. People still have to stay places at different places around the world, whether it be for work or, or vacation or what have you. Yet the way in which that occurs was innovative because, again, they're, they're changing the system. So what happens in those innovations? It forces your traditional system to change as well. You know, why is it when you walk into Marriott or Hilton, they're now saying, like, hey, would you like your free cookie? Here's a bottle of water. Do you need your Wi-Fi? We've got breakfast tomorrow at 8 a.m. for you. You see, they didn't do that 15 years ago. They, they charged you for different things like that 18 years ago. But, but different innovations and things like Airbnb are forcing them to look at it differently. So what about us in school? Well, innovation in, in the outside those school worlds are really forcing us to look at things differently. You know, in the mindset of our job is that content knowledge. <laughs> One of the things I often say that we wrote in Learning Transformed is, you know, if our mindset is that a teacher's main job is content delivery, then they've been outsourced by YouTube and Netflix. Why? Because this Netflix generation of kids that we wrote about is used to content on demand the moment they want it from any device they want it. So as schools, to be innovative, we've got to be more than content. The process in terms of how it looks or the way in which the, uh, kids learn things or do things can be innovative as well. So in terms of innovation, it's making things better. It's doing things different. And quite often, it's the process, not necessarily the end result, the process that can make things innovative. So I'm going to hit you, I'm going to hit you with a tough question. Um, you know, I don't know if you read uh, James Ryan's book uh, several years back, Five Miles Away, A World Apart. Um, but that was actually written uh, about basically where I live here in Richmond, Virginia. And um, my wife, she was working in the city. She worked in city schools for seven years. Um, I worked in, in a part of our surrounding county um, that had, uh, you know, some issues. Uh, but really, how do we bridge the inequality that exists all around our country today in our school systems? If, if we were to, and that's a, that's a loaded question, of course, but if we were to nail it down to one thing that everybody could start doing, what do you think that is? Yeah, and, and so uh, you phrased it as a, as a tough question, and I would say it's it's a real question in the realities that our schools face across the across the country. You know, and, and I've probably been to a few hundred schools in the past three years, and what I can tell you is I've been to some some of the poorest areas in our entire country. I'm talking 100% free and reduced lunch. Every child in that school qualifies and lives in poverty. And I've also been to some of the wealthiest areas. You know, they're not talking. I joke. They're not. They're not talking about going one to one. They're like, we're three to one. We give them an iPad and a Chromebook, and we pay for their cell phone. You know, like they've got everything. Yeah. And and the disparities that you see are fascinating and amazing and utterly sad. When you look, and and, and I have not read that book that you referenced, but the five mile. You know, I live an example of that. You know, I, I lived. Um, in an area in Pennsylvania where I live in a suburban district that's uh, relatively affluent. There's still some need here. Um, but I go five miles east, and it's downtown, one of the, the larger cities in Pennsylvania, and the funding structure for the kids between the borderline, literally, if you live on one side of one street, 
you know, those, those I, I believe the per pupil expenditures, maybe 13500 somewhere in that range. If you live on the other side of the street in the district next door, the per pupil allocation funding is in like the $5,000 range. And, and literally it's divided by a street. And and this is just one area. And, and this is not even some of the most extreme examples. This is just my own. And you said, you, you know, you live in an area like that as well. Yeah. So number one, it's, we need to recognize very severe inequities absolutely are there. One of the things, um, I used to work uh, relatively closely with Secretary Arnie Duncan, and I would see him um, pretty regularly, but one of the things he would often say that I couldn't agree more with is that we can't let a zip code determine a child's quality of education. Now, here's what I know. I know people in our working in our city schools are some of the hardest working, most dedicating, most loving teachers and school leaders on the planet. Absolutely. You know, I know some of and I know the flip side can be said about our suburban schools there as well. Funding is a real issue. When you look at the decrease in state funding over time, um, you know, my first point of reference is here in Pennsylvania where I currently live, and you just look at the percentage of public funding um, and the percentage of schools that uh, local taxpayers have had to pay versus that, it has continued to go down over time from, you know, if you look back 40 or 50 years ago, it was um, many, many times higher than it is today. So you've got this huge funding inequity, and on one hand, I would say, if we were to say what's the one thing, I don't want to say we just have to throw money at a problem, but here's the thing. Many of our kids in our um, lowest performing, quote unquote, school, you know, schools around the country also live in poverty. Now, when you look at things such as when we did research on learning space design, when you look at who sits in our classrooms in our oldest buildings with the lowest air quality, it's our poorest students. The research shows that. So we are taking our students that are highest in need and living in poverty from an SES standpoint. We're putting them quite often in our lowest functioning buildings. And things like air quality impact our learning, impact time sick, impact things like that, impact the structure itself. And then often giving them some of the lowest paid teachers that often have the lowest levels of support. And again, I'm not saying they're, they're poor and it's not a reflection on them at all in terms of their teachers. It's the reality of what they're dealt with. And yet we drive down the street and there's just a much different environment. So I, I would say it's, it's we need to find ways to support those, those lower performing schools, you know, quite often. And even, you know, any, it's really a poverty issue is a big part of it as well. It's recognizing, you know, how do we address poverty on a society scale? Because so much of that's a society issue, not just a K-12 issue. Sure. We're just dealt with the fallout and then held accountable for certain act, actions like that. So I, it's how do we support, you know, under No Child Left Behind, which is which has changed under ESSA, but under No Child Left Behind, it was kind of that let's let's induce this fear factor that if you don't get to this point, you're going to lose funding, possibly be closed. You know, but it's under the premise that we weren't like we as educators weren't working the hardest we could to begin with, or weren't trying to do everything that we could to begin with. You know, there's some positives that came out of that. Like we started to look at data, we started to look at kids as individuals, or what is it that that kid needs. Where you know, 20 years ago, if I got to hey, I got to chapter five, well, you got to chapter seven, all that's all well and good, and you know, so I'm not saying we should go back to no sort of structure, no sort of accountability, nothing in that regard. Because as professionals, we want to have some metrics that we're shooting for. I think we probably all agree with that. But when it comes down to what a system like that created, we started to take away from our neediest buildings, and that certainly was not helpful. So the inequities that we see, let me just give you one other case in one other area. 
something that Eric and I wrote about in Learning Transform, another area we deal with in Future Ready Schools as well, is the two things. One is equity and opportunity, and the other is equity and access. So equity and opportunity, to give you an example, when you look at rigorous courses at the high school level, courses that kids can take, things maybe like a computer science or, you know, a calculus class, and you just take a look at who actually has access to those courses across the board, it's much higher percentages of our white students. And I'm a white male myself, and I'm calling that out because it needs to be called out. Yep. If you look at our black and Hispanic students, just the percentages of just even having access, not even looking at does the child have the skills, is it physically available for them is an issue. And that's equity and opportunity being part of it, just as one example of opportunity. The equity and access piece, um, and I'll, I'll use the access to devices and broadband as that. So I've had the opportunity, I've worked alongside the FCC a little bit in the past number of years for like E-rate modernization and lifeline modernization. But to give you a statistic there, comes from out of the Pew research. So there's about 27 million households in the United States, 27 or 29 million households in the United States that have, student, um, have children of school age. The flip side to that, 5 million of those households do not have broadband access at home. So it's been coined as a homework gap out of D.C., but when we look at it, it's not about homework, it's about connectivity. It's just that the notion that Congress understands what homework is, but it's really a connectivity gap. So when we look at the equity there, we've got kids that were giving devices quite often saying to go home and 70% of our teachers are asking kids to do something online. So they go ahead and they do something like that, you know, online, but then they go home with no access. What then? Now, of course, educators being educators, we see them stepping up, we see them working with the community, we see them creating these kiosks around their community. But what about those kids that don't have the that don't have the, the access at home, yet are required to do things? We're taking those, because they're often poverty-related, we're often then taking those and putting them in a, in a bad spot there as well. So, you know, what can we do? It's loving and caring about that kid and doing whatever we can to get them the support they need or the, uh, the access and the opportunity that they need. It's certainly much easier said than done. And I fully recognize that, but I'm encouraged by the educators that are tackling those issues every day. And that's a that's a perfect transition to the next statement. I think it's really easy when you talk about how to change education. It's really easy to focus uh, on all of the problems, and, and I know that you are actively working to change those things, but I want to pause for a minute and just Talk about the things that are right with education, not even things that need to change, but things that we need to keep doing across the country, across the world that are working for our students. Yeah, I love that. I love that statement. I'm very much an optimist myself. And, you know, I think it's even the question is a microcosm of the education system as a whole. When we've looked quite often, we've often gone at things with this deficit mindset. Here's what this kid is missing. Here's what this kid's need. This is where he's not at at a reason level, but he needs to be. You know, and, and I understand that having been the principal, having been in those team meetings, I understand why it's okay to look at a kid's needs or weaknesses so we can teach to them and pinpoint what's needed. But the downside can be we start to see kids as data points. We start to see them as, you know, needs as opposed to the flip side. Here's everything that they can do. And here's their strengths. And look how we can leverage these strengths to, to do even greater things with this kiddo and, and, and have that not instead of a deficit mindset, have that kind of strength-based mindset in that regard. So your question is really a microcosm of what we often see in education. There's a lot right in education, and, and number one, it's the people. You know, educators, we see them across the country. When we look in the past just even number of weeks, 
the amount of educators in full states, whether it's Arizona or you know other places, Oklahoma, other places around the country that are that are walking out, that are saying like we need higher rate, higher wages, we can't be living in poverty, you know, invest in our future. But what I see at the heart of those, whether you agree or disagree along the lines of any sort of walkout, it's the heart of people to say, we need to do better for kids. You know, educators are truly some of the most selfless, working, dedicated, loving, creative people on the planet. And you find them in the inner city schools and the rural schools and the suburban schools. And if there's one thing that we have right, it's, it's we've got great people. And it's a people business that we're in. So that's truly key. Number two is I, I find that um, in terms of what's right, I get to work with thousands of educators every year. And sure, do we have some people that, you know, probably shouldn't be in the system or aren't very effective or it's more about them than it is about others? Sure, we do. Just like every other industry out there has that as well. But here's what I know. The vast amount of educators are in it for the right reason. <laughs> I've never heard somebody say, yeah, like they got into this profession for the money. Like they're doing this because they want to retire wealthy someday. They do it as a service because they want they want to help kids. They believe in our future, and so it, it, just to focus on what what's right, it's the people, and it's the people that we have that are serving kids every single day. It's the smiling faces that we see. It's the conversations that we're having with parents when their student success. It's the it, you know it's the band night where we're celebrating kids and how far they've come that we've helped teach them. It's the sports field where we're where we're coaching them to be you know not just baseball players but better human beings. You know it's it, in the, we could go through on and on and on of all the other things that we do in education to support kids. And it's, I really believe that we do see at the classroom level, at the building level, at the district level, kids not as data points, kids not as you know proficient or, or, or you know approaching or whatever you want to call it. We see them as the whole child. We see the value in things like sports or music or art. And yes, I know things like that have gotten cut for budget reasons in different ways. But even in those, those most difficult scenarios, Educators still continue to step up to figure out ways to partner, to figure out ways to provide opportunities for kids because they love and care about the, the, the people that they serve. And so if we're going to focus on what's right, I focus on the people that are working their hearts out every day. All right, Tom. Now the most difficult round of questions you've ever been asked, way more difficult than what you deal with day to day. I got a segment called 10 in 10 where I'm going to ask you 10 random questions, and your job is to try to answer each one of those in 10 seconds or less. All right, that's going to be a challenge for me, as you can tell, but I'll do what I can. 10 seconds or less, got it. All right, so first question, coffee, tea, or water? Coffee. I need my caffeine. Back roads or interstate? Back roads. I love scenery, and sometimes it's just downtime and relax. Okay, if you're relaxing, are you by the fire or by the beach? By the beach, no questions asked. Best concert you've ever been to? Anything country. All right, favorite team in Pennsylvania? Uh, can't answer it. My favorite <laughs> team is I'm a New Yorker. Go New York Giants. This year in football was difficult. Oh, all right. Three people that you'd like to have dinner with. My grandfather, who passed a long time ago, uh, Jesus Christ, I'm a person of faith and somebody that I look up to and somebody that, that I, I learn from daily and try and, and be more and more like. Um, and a third one, my mentor, who was killed in a car accident in my very first year. I miss him. Mm-hmm. All right. Great guest list. If you could take all of those people somewhere, where would you guys go to eat? 
I would say I'm a big fan of Mexican food. So I would say anywhere Mexican and authentic Mexican, not Taco Bell. Okay. All right. Last book you read. Uh, last book I would would be The Learner-Centered Innovation by Katie Martin, a good friend of mine, and a great book. All right. So other than you, um, who should everyone that's trying to grow a PLN or just really trying to see who's out there in the world in education, who should they be following right now? Sure. I'll give you a list of some of our future-ready advisors, people to connect with. Um, I'll go with Jimmy Casas, an incredible, incredible leader. Joe Sanfilippo, an amazing superintendent. Uh, Brianna Hodges, somebody out of Texas, Ed Tech of the Year. Carl Hooker, um, also director of uh, digital learning renovation down there in Texas as well. Um, Eric Scheninger, my co-author, amazing. Uh, George Kuros, a good friend of mine, another somebody that just constantly is writing, constantly putting his heart out there and sharing and uh, helping a chance to transform the system. His book, The Innovator's Mindset, is awesome. Um, and uh, I'd say somebody like a Rafranz Davis, who's constantly pushing the envelope from an ed tech end, but also from an equity end and a race end. Really respect her work. Um, and those are just a few people that come off the top of my head. All right, so I'm an eighth grade teacher, so my students are a couple months away from being done with middle school, a few months away from walking for the first time into a high school. What would what advice would you give one of them getting ready to start high school in a few months? You know, I, I look back to my own high school career, and I, I think it was enjoyable, um, and I think it went well, but I would say just be you. Be who you want to be. It's it's. We're here to serve you and, and be yourself. Don't don't care what the other people think in that regard, and it's so difficult to understand that in high school. But just be you and be who you want to be. Okay. All right, Tom, I know uh, how to find you, but for everyone listening, um, motivated, inspired by your work, where can they find you? Sure. So uh, on Twitter at Thomas C. Murray. Um, the website is thomascmurray.com, and I encourage people to check out Future Ready Schools. It is totally free. We don't sell anything. That's futureready.org. And if you're interested in the book, Learning Transformed is my latest book with ASTD, co-written by Eric Scheninger, where we move from research to practice and highlight many of the great things that schools are doing to transform teaching and learning for kids. All right. Tom, I appreciate it, sir. All right. Hey, thanks for having me on as a guest, and thanks for having me here. Hey everybody, what's up? Jason Vest here from the After Ed Podcast. Look, we are growing. We are having amazing guests on, but we need you to subscribe. We need you to refer guests for the show. We need you to go and leave reviews only to help us get better and spread our message. If you love what you hear with the podcast, head on over to Twitter at Mr. Vest RVA. Instagram is the same name. Give me a shout out there as well. Also, if you want to check out what my students are doing from this innovation class that I always reference, check them out on the various social platforms at InnovateHC. That's